Our God, it is so good to meet with your people, to have our thoughts captivated with the glory of God himself, Robin himself in human flesh, being born as a baby, living a perfect life under your law, offering himself as a sacrifice for sinners. Lord, we recognize that we so often come here with our own set of distractions. We, we think of Gene and Jason recently who have lost loved ones for uh, uh, Barbara, whose mom went uh, graduated to heaven. We think of those in our midst who are wrestling through job needs, financial needs, and even as we as a church wait upon you to intervene with the direction Lord, should you tarry, would you give us the grace for the daily battle against our own sin? And as we gather for worship, would you be so kind to help uh, captivate our thoughts through your spirit? Help uh, lay them aside that we would focus and have our attention riveted on Christ. What a magnificent picture of our triune God and his act of redemption. The Father's election the Son's redemption, the Spirit's sealing. And as we come to this sacred moment of our worship service, might our attention be riveted on Christ, in whom are all your treasures. As we sit at your feet, would you equip us to lead lives of gratitude until you come again or call us home. We entrust these few moments to you in the name of Christ. Amen. As we look at redemption this morning, uh, redemption is central to Christianity. More than that, it's probably the single most beloved term in all the Christians' vocabulary. In the early part of the century, B.B. Warfield, the distinguished professor of didactic and polemic theology at Princeton Theological Seminary, delivered an address to his incoming students. In that address, he argued, quote, There is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. This is because, he said, Redeemer is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ was given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. In that address that day, he proved his thesis not by some persuasive or eloquent theological argument, but by reference in hymns. You know, we sang some, some dear Christmas hymns this morning to respond to God's truth and to offer them up to our God in worship. And so he referenced church hymns in which he maintained the true devotional heart of God's people most evident. He cited hymns such as, Let our whole soul an offering be to our Redeemer's name. Or while we pray for pardoning grace through the dear Redeemer's name. 
or Almighty Son, Incarnate Word, our Prophet, Priest, Redeemer, Lord. Well, that hymn many of you can recall, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. All glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King. You notice the theme? The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved within his own precious blood. Warfield listed 27 such selections, as well as lines by William Dunbar, William Shakespeare, Christina Rossetti, and Henry Vaughan. Lest we should miss the point, he did the same thing with hymns using the word ransom, a parallel thought. As you think about redemption, let's read again both the passage we looked at last week that uh, highlighted the Father as well as our text for this morning in verses 7 through 10. Join me in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. As Paul breaks out in eulogy and praise to our God, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And then notice the verses for today, beginning in verse 7 through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. Let's stop our reading right there. We're looking at stanza two of... The Apostles' eulogy of praise for Trinitarian redemption. Each stanza of this eulogy emphasizing a different member of the Trinity and their contribution to salvation. One theologian, Lorraine Bentner, kind of captivated Trinitarian redemption this way. He said, quote, Salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of the triune God. The Father chose a people, the Son died for them, the Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing the elect to faith and repentance, thereby causing them to willingly obey the gospel. The entire process, election, redemption, regeneration, is the work of God and is by grace alone. Thus God, not man, determines who will be the recipients of that gift of salvation." So as we contemplate the master plan of redemption by the Trinity, the Father in eternity past choosing a bride for His Son is what we looked at last week. And uh, this week we'll be captivated by the Son obediently robing Himself with flesh, condescending, emptying Himself limiting the free exercise of the prerogatives of deity as he came to earth to accomplish redemption's plan. And then 
Next week, we'll look at the Holy Spirit drawing to salvation and applying the work of salvation, empowering for service and keeping us until that great day that God's people look forward to. Having blessed God for his election and adoption of men and women in Christ, Paul next praises him for redemption and forgiveness of trespasses. So the Father's plan, the Holy Spirit's application, but this morning the Son's provision on that tree. Let's notice three works of Christ causing us to rejoice and praise. Three works of Christ, beginning in verse number 7 with being redeemed and forgiven. Notice how pregnant this verse is with meaning, even in that first phrase. In Him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In him brackets this whole section that we are looking at this morning, verses 7 through 10, in him. The father's plan of adoption into the family could only be accomplished through Jesus Christ. Don't skip over that too fast. He alone having made provision for that plan. There is no alternative. There is no plan B. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in Him. He alone made the provision for that plan. And so the apostle is denoting this sphere here in an internal, close relationship Redemption is integrally connected to Christ. There is no redemption without the Redeemer, without Christ. And so allowing Scripture to illustrate Scripture, insert in your thinking here Colossians 1.16. As Paul would address them in Colossians 1.16, you remember what he said he said in his, in his argument on the preeminence of Christ in Colossians 1.16, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Paul uses three prepositions in that passage referring to the creation of Christ. Creation is In Christ, it is through Christ, it is for Christ. And as we we meditate on the glorious plan of redeeming grace, it's all about Christ in, through, and for. It's bound up strictly with the person of Jesus Christ. And the first significant accomplishment of that one is redemption. In Him, we have redemption. In the Old Testament, redemption describes the release of slaves. Think through your Old Testament history in uh, Exodus and Leviticus. We see uh, various ordinances. For instance, in Exodus 21, God gives ordinances for the treatment of slaves. If somebody is to be redeemed from slavery, here's how it's to go about. When God raised up Moses as 
a redeemer. Matter of fact, uh, let me go back there. If you wanted to join me in Exodus 6 6 or, or listen in as you hear it. In Exodus 6 6, to introduce us to this concept of redemption, here, here was the marching orders for Moses. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Remember how, how it all started? God, uh, God's servants were lacking, and so God sent them in to Egypt, and they would suffer horrific slavery for hundreds of years. And so when God would finally bring them out of the house of bondage, the house of slavery, He would redeem His people and He would use His spokesperson, Moses, to redeem them. The greatest act in Old Testament history of the Jews was their redemption from the, their bondage in Egypt. It was a big deal. It was nothing. It was no small feat. As they as they look back at the history logs of their experience with Yahweh, it is one of redemption. They couldn't do anything about it. Matter of fact, when when they would even pray. Uh, and thank God for this marvelous redemption and deliverance. David, uh, David's prayer that's recorded in 1 Chronicles 17, 21. He's reflecting upon this very truth. I'm in 2 Chronicles. No wonder why I can't find a verse 21. 1 Chronicles... 17.21, where he says, like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself. Again, notice, notice that the purpose of redemption hasn't changed. God is redeeming a people for the praise of his great name. To redeem for himself as a people, to make you a, a, a name by great and terrible things in driving out nations from before your people whom you redeemed out of Egypt. This is the common theme throughout the defining event for Israel. And so they were called, even in Deuteronomy, constantly reflect and remember on a perpetual basis your redemption. Lest you get lulled to sleep, we are prone to being calloused, beloved. We need to peruse and meditate frequently on redemption. If time would afford us, we'd spend some time tracing this through Scripture. If you want to refresh your memory on the website with the teaching on uh, Boaz and Rup, the kinsman, what? Redeemer. In the New Testament times, there was an abundant prevalence of slavery in the Roman world with as many as six million slaves. So, so buying and selling of slaves was no minor deal. No minor deal whatsoever. It was big business. This practice became a great way to convey biblical truths. Look at the slave talk, the slave language in Scripture. Payment of price to secure Freedom, get that in your mind. Whether it's speaking of Israel in the land of bondage in Egypt or this 
helpless widow who is gleaning at the feet of Boaz, or in Roman times, New Testament times, redemption. It's used throughout the New Testament. Paul would use it three various times, and it's in our verse here in Ephesians 1.7. In him we have this redemption, this payment of price to secure freedom. It is to call forth a price, meaning that Christ's death was the price that was paid for freeing us from the wages of sin, sin's imprisonment, sin's bondage. Remember what Jesus said back in in, uh, John's gospel account? Jot down John 8.34, where he said, everyone who commits sin is what? A slave of sin. Every one of us are born children of the devil, slaves of sin. And he's purchased us from the curse of the law. Note well in the verse that we are looking at, Ephesians 1.7, that in him we have redemption. This is not something we are just looking back at or forward to obtaining, but a present reality. We are stand, this, is, this is a standing contrast against other tenses in the passage, a pe- present reality of redemption and forgiveness in Christ. That is what gives us our hope. That is what causes us to stand against hopeless circumstances in life. That to be released and set free from what we could do nothing about It is a release, a setting free, but doing so through payment. You look at how this, this theology unfolds in Scripture. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul would tell the Corinthians, we have been bought with a price. Bought with a price. That's what we commemorate at the Lord's table every other week here. We ought to think regularly and meditate deeply on this present reality of our redemption. Paul would write to Titus in uh, Titus 2.14. We studied that not too long ago. But as he gives a a theological biography of who we were without Christ and who we are in Christ. He says in Titus 2.14 that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Before Christ, we couldn't do anything as slaves of sin but sin. And now we have been in bondage to the Redeemer, a most benevolent Lord. He received our condemnation and punishment in place of us. Notice this purchase in our verse, going back to Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now stop for just a moment in your thinking. I remember... Close to 20 years ago, I moved to a small, remote, uh, a remoter town in Maine than where I grew up. 
And one of my first visits to the post office, I was asked a question by the janitor since uh, uh, I, I didn't know anything about this MacArthur guy. This was before seminary. This was after Bible college. And, and this guy asked me, are you a blutter or a non-blutter? And I said, what are you talking about? I haven't got my deer this year. Uh, and uh, there was this uh, war raging about people saying that uh, this expositor who I didn't really know about, I had one or two of his books in my library, uh, that this guy was denying the blood of Christ. And uh, there's this whole controversy. There's a lot of uh, fighting fundamentalists who have uh, had dismissed MacArthur's exposition saying that he was a heretic because he denied the blood of Jesus. If you want to uh, waste your time YouTubing uh, videos and whatnot, I remember the the Bible college I went to took took John off the air over the blood. Uh, I think it was the mid-80s or so. But uh, all this harangue that goes on in blogs, when you study the Scripture, you, you can't deny that Christianity is a bloody religion, that there is the issue of blood, but what is it speaking to? The shedding of blood was necessary. Leviticus 17.11 tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Scripture tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In our, our, our epistle at hand in Ephesians 2 and verse 13, we are told that we were far off but have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what is being spoken of here? When Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 that uh, we have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. You look at worship in the Old Covenant Animals were not strangled. They were butchered. It was a bloody religion. Uh, to be a priest mean that, meant that uh, you were a professional at slaughtering animals. To worship Yahweh, it was to teach that God is much more holy than you think He is, and your sin is a much bigger deal than you think it is. And so there must be life-taking. It's that big a deal. You know, the temple, the priests, it was all bloody. Well, going back to what I was approached by in Greenville, Maine, uh, you know, they, they, what MacArthur was teaching was that uh, it, it wasn't the fluid that ran down his body that saves the soul. We're not talking about the divine blood. When we, partake, when we commemorate the Lord's death on, at the Lord's table every other week here, it is grape juice bought at Big Y or whoever else has it on sale because it's a picture. It's an ordinance for the local church. It does not become the body and the blood of Christ. So when Scripture teaches us that there must be a violent death, there must be a violent death. There must be the substitution. Somebody has to pay. The wages of sin is death. There is no getting around death. So John's contention was just that it wasn't the physical liquid that was spilt as if it was divine blood to be, uh, to be caught in a chalice and kept and constantly offered up. 
but that there really must be a death, a substitute. The innocent for the guilty is the spiritual reality being conveyed. It's shorthand for God's accomplishments in salvation. If I were to ask, it's a metonym. If I were to ask you, uh, have you been saved? You would understand. Are Are you saved by the blood of Christ? You'd nod your head and say, yeah, I'm saved by the blood of Christ. If I were to ask you, are you saved by the cross of Calvary? We've sung enough songs. We know our theology. Yes, it's through the cross of Calvary. If I were to uh, ask you if it's through the sacrificial death of Christ, they're all speaking about the same theology. It's a figure of speech. It is the ransom price for sin. As we sing about the blood in our hymns, We're simply trying to be consistent with Scripture and scriptural songs. If you wanted to set your eyes on uh, on, uh, when when John records his revelation in Revelation 1-5, the revelation that he got from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. Blood is the theme. Calvary is the theme. The cross is the theme. Christ is our theme. And so when we see the redeemed in glory around the throne in Revelation 5 and verse number 9, notice what the new song consists of. They are saying, Worthy are you to take the book to break its seal, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is the one who has redeemed us, released us from our sins by his blood, a violent death of the innocent one, the beloved one, as Paul wrote about last week, for the guilty ones. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This, this being somewhat of a parallel statement, but further defining what he earlier said in the verse, it's the immediate and primary result of being released from sin's bondage. Freedom, from, if, we, if we were to use chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, to define this forgiveness, this freedom. It's freedom from the age of the world. It's freedom from the ruler of the realm of the air. And it's freedom from our own corrupt flesh, according to 2, verses 1 through 3. Not to mention, in chapter 4, verses 18, he talks about alienation from God. That fleshes out this forgiveness, this freedom. Future judgment, chapter 4, verse 30. As Israel was called to constantly meditate on the glory of redemption from slavery, so too the church needs to constantly, and you as individual believers need to meditate on redemption and we must constantly be captivated by forgiveness. Forgiveness. The term 
aphesis here for forgiveness. It's used in classical literature of a release of captives. It's used of a cancellation or release from legal charges or financial obligations or punishment. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it translates numerous Hebrew words that will denote release. So as you try to think through this this theology of forgiveness that we experience in Christ in the shedding of His blood for us, it's release, it's, it's amnesty, it's liberty. Or to use one of, the, one of my favorite Old Testament words, you remember Jubilee and how Israel is taught uh, uh, to mark the release of slaves and debt and property every 50 years? It's used often in the New Testament to convey the permanent cancellation or release from punishment for sin because it's been paid for. It doesn't get paid over and over again, once and for all. The crucial concept or reality of justification and reconciliation is that we're forgiven. How often have you heard people try to abbreviate a definition of justification by faith in Christ alone and They'll, uh, they'll define it, uh, justification is just as if I never sinned, because just is in the word, so that can help with the definition, right? Well, my only problem with that is it's not accurate. Just as if I never sinned, but I did sin. And my sin must be paid for, either by me for all of eternity or my substitute, Christ. I did sin, and yet it was paid, and so I experienced in Christ forgiveness. God never reduced the standard of absolute perfection or the price that His holiness demanded. There must be death, there must be payment. Forgiveness is essential to relationship with the Father. It was associated with John's baptism in Mark 1.4. It's repeated throughout Acts and the message as an inclusion of salvation that if you've been uh, placed in Christ, if you're now experiencing the baptism of the Spirit, this new covenant blessing and benefit of being in Christ, you experience forgiveness. It's part and parcel to it. What magnifies the beauty of redemption and forgiveness is not just, okay, we reflect upon the redemption aspect, the, the, the price of, of the spotless and sinless Son of God being poured out as my substitute. And we experience forgiveness. Notice how intentional every word is in this pregnant verse. In Him we've got redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Again, don't move on too quickly. As we meditate on redemption and contemplate the biblical revelation of forgiveness, let's not too quickly go over trespasses. That is what magnifies forgiveness and redemption 
that as we've accumulated an eternal debt of sin, lost in transgressions and sins, and we can do nothing about it, we can do nothing to get to God, God came to man in the form of man, to lawbreakers, those who trespass against him. So in a in a similar vein, uh, I think we'd mentioned last week, there's a, there's a lot of people that struggle with the biblical doctrine of, of election, and it's really not the doctrine of election they struggle with, but not understanding total depravity. It's an issue of not really comprehending how bad my sin is. So too, I think that there would be a lot less struggling with particular redemption if we understand the greatness of the transgression of which we are redeemed from. So everything kind of stems back to the biblical doctrine of total inability to save ourselves. There was no potential, just a potential of salvation, but Jesus truly redeemed all that the Father sent him to bring to glory. That magnifies grace. God is a creator, perfectly holy, requiring absolute obedience to his law. I trust that's where your evangelism begins, beloved. He created us for his glory, but we've fallen short. We've trespassed. And to understand how great that trespass is against an infinitely holy God is to be bolstered in our worship of God for our forgiveness. That's what magnifies redemption and forgiveness. You know, these trespasses that Scripture speaks about, it speaks of a false step, mistake. It can be translated fault or error. It is used synonymously with another Greek term, harmartia, sin, but don't read into the words any passivity. Again, don't, let's, let's be cautious about uh, using our English language. Okay, it's a mistake. Well, don't we all make mistakes? Don't we all mess up? Well, you don't realize how bad the mess up is. That's our problem. Our culture is all too comfortable to say, we're all just sinners. We all do wrong. I'm not that bad compared to so-and-so, but if the standard is the son who never spoke ill of his father, never sinned, the standard is still, Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Okay, I haven't reached that bar. The Bible speaks of more than an inadvertent mistake, but a conscious and willful act against a holy and righteous God. So the, one of the dearest truths to those of us who have, have experienced redemption and forgiveness is that we're not trying to excuse. We're, we're being very honest with our, the wretchedness of our own hearts so many people want to excuse trespasses and fault and responsibility by blaming genes or uh, environment or, or, or parents or something else, else external, whereas Scripture keeps on going right to the heart of the matter, our own sinful hearts. 
So here we've got redemption, the cause, and forgiveness, the effect. Sin had to be paid. God's holiness had to be appeased. The wrath of the Father must be absorbed in the Son to be turned away from rebels, trespassers such as you and I. But notice this this God-centered focus, this gracious benevolence as as we move from redemption and forgiveness to the rest of verse 7 going into verse 8. That this, this redemption through His blood, this forgiveness of our trespasses, is all granted according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us. If you're taking notes, point two, bestowed grace upon us, that's the second, of act, second act of Christ that elicits our worship and service. According to the riches of of grace. Notice it's not out of grace, but according to it. In other words, the exceedingly great wealth of grace that's overflowing and magnificent and and abundant. This is significant. It's off the top. It's you know, if it, if it were, if Paul had stated it out of his blessings, well, what did he leave behind? Is he stingy? Is he holding some to himself? But it's according to, and if Scripture teaches us an actor, accurate theology of who God is, I think wealth is a good translation, meaning full or fill, having an abundance, riches or wealth. And if we believe in verbal plenary inspiration and, and, and inerrancy, then every, if every word's important, every word gets attention, and it's not there just as extra verbiage. That it's according to the lavishness or the riches or the wealth of God's grace that He poured out and lavished upon us. This... Uh, term full or fill uh, is, is used in the Old Testament speaking of King Solomon. You remember what Scripture reveals about him? How that uh, in, in 1 Kings 10.23, he had riches and wisdom exceeding any earthly king, far superior and in much more abundance. That's the term used. It took the wealth of God's grace to redeem and forgive the sinner. It was the supreme cost of the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And lest you be guilty, if you're sitting here and do not know Christ, have not been redeemed, unless you think that that God didn't foresee an eternity past when He elected a people, that uh, He didn't understand your situation, that you're the worst of sinners, that it's beyond the grip of grace, that is anti-scriptural, that he redeems and forgives sinners according to lavish, abundant, far superior grace. And Paul will kind of use this point, this lavish grace point as a hinge, not only speaking of the act of redemption and forgiveness, but even the outworking of the rest of redemption's plan, especially as he starts getting at the goal. 
So we can't just see redemption as a get-out-of-hell-free card, as a selfish thing for me. How often does Paul say that it's for the praise of his glory? Redemption's for the glory of God, not just the redemption of the sinner. He emphasizes it's to the praise of his glory. And that he wasn't finished at the cross. And he wasn't just finished at the date of your conversion. But this lavish grace continues to work until the coming day when everything is summed up under the headship of Jesus Christ. And before we leave this this hinge point on the lavish grace that's been poured out in abundance, that word lavish, to abound, to pour out unsparingly. And it's not just a grace that is uh, stored up somewhere as a potential, but already poured out sufficiently, abundantly to cover the sins of the worst sinner. Our scripture reading last week as a church, remember where it was? If I remember correctly, it was Micah. And what precious thoughts Micah's got revealing who God is as a forgiver of sins. In Micah 7, verses 18 and 19, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. What a what the absolute contrast to all the gods of human imagination. That God would delight in unchanging love. And he follows that thought up in verse 19 that he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea, which elsewhere we're told he, he doesn't remember them anymore. He doesn't hold them to his elect's charge. What a remarkable reality. So there's gracious salvation, there's gracious sanctification, there's gracious direction, gracious empowerment, gracious revelation. Go with me to this third and last thought of our Redeemer, that he's revealed his plan to us. We're told at the end of verse 8 that in all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things on the earth. Notice part of his graciousness is that he reveals his plan. He provides wisdom to understand the mystery of his will. Many of you adults that are here this morning went through our thematic Proverbs study, and so you can recollect in the Old Testament the concept of wisdom wasn't solely theoretical knowledge, but a combination of the theoretical and the practical It is an understanding of skillful living and true wisdom for those that fear the Lord. In other words, only fearers of God are the wise ones that walk planet earth. So how's Paul using it here? 
You remember his magnificent contrast when he writes to the Corinthians in First Corinthians chapters, uh, the end of chapter one and going in most of chapter two, and he contrasts human wisdom and divine wisdom. And he repeats that term 15 times in that one section of Scripture. It's important to understand this. Uh, go back there with me just uh, ever so briefly. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, because this fleshes out the lavish grace that he reveals and, and bestows benevolently upon his people Paul attests in 1 Corinthians 1.17 that Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. I think that that, that first uh, phrase there is what uh, hearers would be choking down awful hard. You know, it's not the cleverness of speech. It's not, he wasn't trying to keep up with all the orators of his age. That's not what God called him to do. You notice his message as he begins to talk about it in verse 18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I'll set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know, here Paul was coming to town preaching that uh, his conqueror was a crucified Savior. You know, our message today in 2015, the, the world scoffs upon. Paul will tell us in, at the end of this, the next chapter, the natural man, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. It's foolishness. He can't understand them. They're spiritually appraised. But to he who is spiritual appraises all things. That's the wisdom and insight that Paul's talking about to the church at Ephesus. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And as God reveals His person and His plan to His people, we know what God thinks. Talk about trying to unscrew the inscrutable. In the the kindness of God, He revealed to sinful man who He is and what He expects of them, that they could render worthy worship to Him. It's important to notice that words dealing with wisdom are naturally associated with revelation. I trust you've come to understand the absolute weakness and inherent flaws in human wisdom. Human wisdom has been drastically affected by the fall. Theologians call this the the noetic effects of sin. We can't even think straight, nor do we have the right agenda. Even our reasoning capacity... You know, to, to try to proceed based on experience, we interpret things wrong. We'll, even uh, Peter tries to help remind us, doesn't he, in his epistle, that uh, even though I was up on the mount where he was transfigured, I watched it, I saw it, I experienced it, we have a more sure word. You know, human self-reformation cannot change people. 
Only the gospel can save and sanctify. Only the crucified, risen, and interceding Christ in Him, the one and only one, the beloved one, the one who is the very wisdom of God can generate the power that transforms sinful man. He is the power and the wisdom of God. That's what Paul would tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the power and wisdom of God. I think it was this, yeah, this past week in our discipleship counseling class, we were looking at the spiritual and physical aspects of biblical counsel. Yeah, you get in trouble when you make suggestions, but, uh, you know, biblical counselors would suggest the psychological doesn't even exist according to biblical revelation. God tells us that He created man living souls in the very book of beginnings, Genesis. And they reside in a body of flesh. So to make it very simple, since we need it simple, God says there, there is material, there is immaterial. We are those who are created in the image of God. Everything we experience, we experience as dual beings, spirit beings in a body of flesh. You know, when you start thinking about the spiritual and the physical and the pseudoscience of modern medicine. Praise God for, for modern medicine that, uh, you know, that can have pathology and that can show us how things work. You know, if you've got a headache, you can take an aspirin. Praise God for that. But when we start launching off into speculative areas and false constructs, We could spend time, if we wanted to, looking at behavioral genetics, lack of reports. You look at what is the best that man can conjure up in trying to define this body-soul reality, the way it's diagnosed in, the, in the, the diagnostic and statistic manual. We're up to edition number five now because they've never been able to agree on, on the definition of what, what is mental illness how does the mind get sick? The brain can get sick, but the soul of man, we've got the Word of God to keep it healthy. Especially when you've got committee votes determining what do we include and what do we don't, especially since there's no pathology for a lot of the stuff that we're foisting as man's syndromes. We look at life through divine revelation. You know, when, when man try to concoct and they, they look at horrible tragedies that it seems like these shootings are escalating in frequency and they try to figure out, well, whether it's the gun or whether it's somebody who, you, you look at the paper, the newspaper articles that say, well, maybe he was mentally unstable. No, he's, he's do, like his father the devil has done, been a murderer from the beginning, John 8. We are sinners in rebellion against our Creator unless brought near through Christ and subdued by the Gospel. Only Christians are enlightened by the Scripture to have wisdom and can bring glory to God through obedience and a heart that, can, that is compelled by lavish Gospel grace. It's not a matter of smarts, Paul says. Well, he doesn't use the word smarts. It's not a matter of eloquence. That's not how he came to town but allegiance to the Lord. 
French philosopher André Moroy said, The universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we here on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I have not the slightest idea, and I am not convinced that no one else has the least idea. Man can't get to the conclusion unless they have been redeemed and forgiven of their sins and brought near and granted wisdom and insight. A heart that's compelled to delight in God and to live a life to His praise, His honor, and His glory. God hides those things from the wise and the intelligent and yet reveals them to babes, says Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty five. Many of the local religions, as Paul came to, came to town on some missionary journeys and sent others as well, he came to Ephesus who had mystery rites, mystery wisdom. Many of the new believers needed Paul to equip them on their completeness in Christ and the simplicity of devotion to Christ. Those who had been formally initiated into the mysticism or empiricism or reason of man... The mystery religion of Artemis and Cybele and Dionysus and any other pagan god who had been inoculated against the gospel and true wisdom. Yet God said to them, He's lavished His grace and given you wisdom and insight to make you know the mystery of His will. God's graciously given us insight into the true nature of things. Wow, you revealed to us that we are image bearers in the body of flesh. Okay. You've instructed us how to put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. And so for the believer, we must rely on divine revelation rather than human intuition and mysticism and empiricism and reason. He's lavished it on His own. This lavish grace making us known as his mystery of his will according to his kind intention. He's lavished every kind of insight and discretion. Along with redemption, we've got lavish grace given wisdom and insight by which to live wisely. He'll flesh that out practically in chapter 5 and verse 15. But particularly in light of his saving plan, the mystery of his will. Scripture tells us who God is. And what his plan is, we have the very mind of Christ. All was revealed and affected in Christ. He was the basis and the goal of the mystery. If we had time, we'd probably make a pit stop over in Daniel for this, uh, this mystery of his will and the redemptive plan of God. Multiple occurrences in Daniel 2. Only Daniel could could uh, explain Nebuchadnezzar's dream because God imparted revelation. Again, wisdom associated with revelation. The dream was the revelation of God's redemptive plan for the end. This redemption that was orchestrated by the Father, accomplished by the Son, brought near by the Spirit, is no afterthought. It's no plan B. Even though the details hadn't been all spelled out as, as needed, God would reveal the details. So he gave a plan, 
a plan for the consummation of the age, notice this, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Administration is the term oikonomia. Sounds like economy, doesn't it? It's used as the position of, or, or office of an administrator, a manager of a house. Remember the parable of the householder that we looked at a few years ago in uh, Matthew 13, 52? God's the administrator of his creation. Jesus gave five parables portraying God as manager of his household. That's Paul's reminder here in this praise for the eternal redemptive plan. Paul assures that the problem of sin, the problem of rebellion, it will one day be dealt with by a decisive intervention by God. He'll act once and for all to bring all rebellion under the control of Christ. And that plan for consummation also brings all creation under the headship of Christ. Notice, he's summing up all things in Christ. Things in the heavens, things on the earth, in the fullness of times. He he appears to be pointing to the fullness, the totality of times, the epochs of history. This accumulation of times will be completed when Messiah rules. That future earthly messianic kingdom that's promised in the Old Testament, that's discussed in the gospel accounts, that's not fulfilled in Christ's ascension, but is hoped for by the church. The details haven't gotten in God's way. God has developed a long-range plan for humanity, taking into account man's fall, man's desperate need for redemption, the millennia of rebellion and unfaithfulness against their God. And yet His plan is not off track one iota. He will sum up all things in Christ, uniting under one head, summing up, bringing all parts into a cohesive whole. That final stage that was begun at Calvary as God was bringing to pass the new covenant extends in the present time. And though his arch nemesis, the devil, was mortally wounded at the cross, he's still alive on planet earth. So as John pens how it's all going to come to a head in Revelation 19 to 21, it describes Christ's final victory over earthly rulers. The binding of Satan, the rule for a thousand years, all this pictures subjection by Christ of all things in heaven and on earth. Unless you think that it's all accomplished in the millennium, the millennial will be a, a, a taste of the eternal state when chaos is removed, but it's only in the eternal state that every knee has finally bowed to the Lordship of Christ. Not in this present church age, but the future messianic age. Even though the church today submits to her head the Lord Jesus, not not everyone is bowed. It's not a perfect allegiance. We look forward to that. So as Christ was the agent and head of creation and maintains his headship in the church today... He will once again bring all of creation in earth and heaven, as Paul says here, 
under the headship. Harmony under one head. What a glorious day it'll be. Suffice it to say that Christ is the only solution to the problem of rampant rebellion against God. It was through the blood of Christ that the cost of redemption was, pl- was paid. The ransom money of the spotless Son of God. And as you and I reflect upon these truths, repentance needs to be a daily dis- discipline of prayer. We've talked about that. Confession of sin, repentance. But how about that daily discipline of receiving God's forgiveness through that process? We could go to school with David in Psalm 32 when he suggests, you want happiness? You want fulfillment? The only people that are fulfilled are those who have been forgiven at the feet of Christ. There is blessedness. There is joy of guilt-free living. So as we practice biblical confession, saying the same thing God says about our sin, we turn from it we also receive from his lavish and benevolent and gracious hand his forgiveness. It's a full circle. Don't leave it out. I loved a, a, a post that Ligonier put on social media probably, uh, probably three or four weeks ago, quoting R.C. Sproul, when he says, When God promises us that he will forgive us, we insult his integrity when we refuse to accept it. How often have we meditated and done like many of the Puritans, looked at the weight of our burden of sin and the separation of fellowship from our Father and not gone all the way to the acceptance of pardon that he promises through his own beloved Son. Jesus came at the appointed time The fullness of time, according to Galatians 4.4, born under the law. A special epoch in which God walked among men. He shook the earth in his death and rose triumphantly and ushered in new covenant blessings. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this marvelous portrait the Apostle Paul gives to your people, We see that before the creation account, you, O Father, elected a people. Your Son came at that right time, and we await the ultimate culmination when all is put under the headship of Christ. Lord, we would pray for any in our midst, any of our neighbors, any of our friends that we cross paths of who are not redeemed, who have have not secured Christ in their lives, who have not turned from their sin and embraced him through faith. Lord, we know that what you have done cannot be undone. That if somebody is truly saved, they're saved for eternity. Help us to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith, to see if redemption and forgiveness is what characterizes our lives. For those that have never come all the way to Christ, we ask that you would, your spirit would convict them of their sin and woo them to salvation, draw them in. For those of us that know him, might Paul's other words resound in our minds that you have redeemed us from our wickedness to purify a people that are your very own. Might we be those who are eager to do what is good, 
that that would be characteristic in our lives. We understand this does not mean perfection of life, but our direction is different. We are now characterized by holy affections because the Spirit regenerated us. Might you be pleased in our lives of worship and service as we adore the Son. Equip us this week as we go to evangelize the lost and build up our beloved brothers. For your glory we ask. Amen.